at some point someone talks about a book that they like and I say, have you read this Kate Elliott book? And then we either enjoy a conversation for five minutes about how wonderful she is or I end up having to edit it out because I can't have every episode be, oh, and by the way, Kate Elliott is awesome. <laughs> well, but this one, I totally can. <laughs> well, well, well this, this, this one, it's on the tin. Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, the podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. My guest this episode is Paul Weimer, who is Prince Justin on Twitter. Paul is a ubiquitous science fiction fantasy reviewer and podcaster. He co-hosts the Hugo-nominated Skiffy and Fanti podcast, often appears over at SF Signal, and shows up plenty of other places as well. Now that Paul is here, I feel like a real podcast. In addition to appearing behind the mic, Paul blogs, tweets a lot, takes photographs, many from my own home state of Minnesota, and reads far too many books. Rather than try to find a topic Paul hasn't discussed before, we're going to indulge ourselves by discussing some of our favorite books, The Chronicles of Amber by Roger Zelazny and the many, many books of Kate Elliott. It's also my pleasure to include a remembrance of Kate Elliott's King's Dragon from Andrea Chandler, who is Civil War Boar, on Twitter. A few notes, Paul references using the 1996 Nebula Award shortlist to find new authors. King's Dragon actually shared the list with George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones in 1998. The eventual award winner was Vonda McIntyre with The Moon and the Sun. We summarized the plots of The Chronicles of Amber during our discussion, so spoiler warning there, although I don't think that the plot is a huge detail in in that particular set of, of very, very crazy books. Most of the Kate Elliott discussion is spoiler-free, but Andrea does reference a minor plot point with emotional resonance during her remembrance. Before launching into the discussion with Paul, and this is the last bit of housekeeping, I would like to let everyone know that I'm going to be at Confusion in Michigan over the weekend of January 22nd to 24th. If you're going to be there, I'd love to say hi. I will be on a panel discussing good science fiction fantasy podcasts, and another one talking about social media bubbles and discovery within social media bubbles. If you have opinions about either of those things and can help me sound smart, please let me know. Finally, I am currently soliciting opinions on Frank Herbert's Dune. There is a link to the page in the show notes where I've asked a few questions. Record yourself responding to any or all of them, or just letting me know a little bit about what you think of Dune. Send me the responses. I will stitch together the answers into the show. Thank you for your patience, and with that housekeeping out of the way, we will start with Paul's history with the genre. I started reading the genre thanks to my older brother, who's seven years older than me, was a genre reader, and so when I was about nine, ten-ish, he thought that I should become a genre reader, too. He started feeding me The Martian Chronicles, iRobot, and so I started picking this. I was like, hey, I like this. Very early on, Roger Zelazny was one of those authors because he had the two-volume science fiction book club edition of the first five Amber novels. So, okay, in the first... 10 authors I read was Roger Zelazny. Wow, this is great. Thanks to the quirks of his personal library and what was available at the time, that's the only Zelazny I read for a while until I was able to find used copies of things like Lord of Light and Creatures of Light and Darkness. For a long while, Roger Zelazny was for me Amber, and Amber was Roger Zelazny, and that was it. That's still all the Zelazny I've read. Oh, Jonah... Oh, Jonah, there's plenty more of Zelazny out there waiting for you. I've heard good things about Lord of Light. If you're going to read at least one other Zelazny novel, Lord of Light probably should be your choice. The next time that science fiction fantasy authors stop putting out good books, I will go back to Zelazny and start with Lord of Light. Yeah, I, I know. That's a problem. But go on. So Zelazny was early. 
Zelazny was early. And it was the, the, the book club edition, because Zelazny's Amber books for me have always been discoveries that you trip over in a used bookstore. And somehow I lost one set, so then I was very excited to get another one. But that it was not used books and a used bookstore discovery for you. No, no, my brother had the books, and I soon got copies of my own. Now the uh, the second five Amber novels, the Merlin novels. Mm-hmm. I'm old enough. I'm 44. That I remember when my brother and I excitedly found out Zelazny was great new Amber novels. Like really, we must get and read these. So I read those as they came out. Okay. That was enormously exciting. As the paperbacks came out, just grabbed, 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 straight through to Prince of Chaos. Mm-hmm. And then came the role-playing game. One thing you didn't mention in your bio, one of the other major things I do is I do a heck of a lot of role-playing. Okay. Role-playing is one of the strands that defines my life, along with photography and reading and podcasting and everything else. Now, in the late 80s, they came out with a Amber Diceless role-playing game. Based on the novels of Roger Zelazny. So Mm -hmm. now back in the days where AOL had active bulletin boards and stuff like that, that was a virtual way to play the game. So that's where I I started learning how to roleplay Amber. I mean, I've been roleplaying almost as long as I've been reading Dungeons and Dragons, Traveler, things like that. By the time I got to the Amber Dice's roleplaying, I was was an old hand at roleplaying. Mm-hmm. And even G- even GMing. So for for years, I I gamed online. I went to conventions in Boston and Michigan, and still I still do some play by email Amber Diceless role playing. Okay, I've been running the same Amber Diceless role playing campaign since 1996. Okay, not many of the original players are still there. <laughs> Two of them mm-hmm. are. So Amber is Amber in its world is something I continually refresh in my mind, even if I haven't read through the Amber novels in 2008. Yeah, so I haven't read them in several years, but I'm continually immersed in, in right. that medium. I remember shadow shifting being very compelling and interesting. Well, that that's that Zelazny penchant for description and evocation. I mean, that's that's where he's able to get his gem. I mean, there's one sequence, particularly, I believe it's the fifth book where he describes this very long shadow shifting sequence and it's just gorgeous just gorgeous prose describing the world's unfolding around him as he's as he's racing across to chaos and mm-hmm. it's it's just that sense of possibility and infinite endlessness that runs around and through him and yeah. through through Corin as is as he's going and, and we can we can even intersect this with power privilege because i mean yes they are a royal family Mm-hmm. You can see this more in the Merlin Chronicles, where poor Merlin doesn't want the power and responsibility and privilege, really. I mean, he's happy being a geek on Earth. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really want to get dragged into things, but everyone keeps dragging him into stuff, and he has to rise to his responsibility, whether he likes it or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, his best friend turns out to be related to him and half trying to kill him, half trying to imprison him, and his girlfriend's <laughs> a sorceress, and... <laughs> King yes. dies again, and so everyone's cozying up to him, and his mother wants him on the throne of chaos. And then there's this font of power over here, and who's who's running that? And why are those going to muck up the universe? So, Pearl Merlin would just be happy off geeking and 
tinkering with Ghost Wheel, but he learns, I think, through the five novels that with great uh, privilege and position comes great responsibility to kind of elide off his Spider-Man. He can't just sit in some shadow on Earth and uh, play video games. He has to take responsibility, and he doesn't like it. No, he doesn't. Now, I have to ask, Mm -hmm. because there's the five Corwin novels and then the Merlin novels, and my last reread of Amber made me feel like I might never read the Merlin novels again. Like, any time I need an Amber fix, I feel like probably the Corwin novels are going to be enough. No, 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 that's fair. I mean, Corwin is so interesting, and his plight is so interesting, and starting off with the whole, I mean, with the classic noir amnesic feel and trying to basically unfolding all that mystery over five novels basically especially especially in the first two that merlin has a has a tough act to follow in this as far as his footsteps and it does sometimes feel the power and the reverb kind of goes a little over the top too much with merlin Mm -hmm. i mean i mean circling back to my my role playing for a moment trying to integrate Stuff that happened in the Merlin novels into my game is kind of hard because it's very atonally different from the Corwin novels, and I've had to yes. play with things a little that way to make it all work out. It's perfectly fair just to read the five mm-hmm. Corwin novels, and frankly, if I'm going to tell somebody, oh, you should read Amber, yeah, I'm going to tell them to read the Corwin novels first, and if they don't want to read anymore, that's mm-hmm. okay. It's a nice, complete story, but mm-hmm. the pure, unadulterated form. I mean, the, the Merlin novels are a very different beast. It's hard to compete with Corwin learning who he is, walking the pattern for the first time. Right. R- running into Avalon and dueling with Benedict or finding out where his father is or finding there's a real primal pattern, running and seeing the unicorn, the battle at the end with Brandon Deirdre going off over the edge. It's kind of hard to compete with all that. It's almost like an inferior shadow of the original novels. <laughs> It It is amazing how much is packed into, especially that first book. Like, there's just a lot that happens. I mean, Corwin comes to his senses. He goes on the hell ride. He doesn't quite make it to Amber. Ends up in the ocean, right? Yeah, he goes into Redma. Yeah, he goes into Redma. He ends up raising an army to try to attack Amber. Gets captured, gets blinded, escapes. Like, that's that's a book. Where all of that happens. And in that book, we are introduced to the shadow shaping that they do, which I just, I'm kind of glad that there aren't a whole lot of other authors who have tried to do that because I feel like Zelazny kind of nailed it. But just the notion I found really appealing and exciting and interesting and uh, of being able to sort of like around the corner, there's something a little bit different, a little bit off. and, And you move from our world into a more mysterious and magical world. I just, there was a part of me that was just like, I am a delighted kid with this notion. I would love to be able to shadow shift and get things and bring them to this earth that I can't have. I mean, just to use this as a lasting example, like there's probably a shadow where he's written more novels. I can go and get them and bring them back. I mean, even right? if it's a different shadow of Zelazny. No, no, shadow, shadow shifting is the power in the Amber novels that you want because you can walk to anything. As far as other authors doing that, actually, I was talking uh, in a recording with uh, Cameron Hurley, and we were talking about Zelazny and Portal Fantasies, and as far as Mirror Empire with its own gates and stuff. But I, I guess, I mean, part of what I find so appealing about shadow shifting is the notion that you have, most of the time, some control over what you're doing. I mean, the intersecting worlds of Mirror Empire are not 
quite the same sorts of interactions as Corwin, especially when he's enjoying his hell rides and not in the midst of trying to make it to chaos or something like that. Yeah, he can go find the the shadow where there's 14,000 foot mountains in front of the beach where he can just like right. swim in the ocean and then go climb the mountain. He can pick the worlds he wants. It's a ticket to anywhere machine if you're willing to uh, to walk or drive or ride a horse or or fly. Or, or if, ride a hang glider if you're uh, random, If you're random, right? yes, exactly. As I was thinking, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Scary, dangerous, but cool. I am going to try something, and I'm going to shift us to Kate Elliott for this. Sure. Something that I have noticed is that I seem to read things a little bit differently from many other people, and I'm sure to some extent reading as individual. There is a common way of dividing up how you talk about books by thinking about plot and character and setting. And I think that on that triangle, I lean far, far, far over on the setting side of things. Mm -hmm. There are some people who get enthusiastic about prose or about the ability to just dive into a world and never leave. Mm -hmm. There's fan fiction and kind of extrapolating characters and settings from there. So I'm curious if we can think about Kate Elliott. What are some of the things when you think about Kate Elliott and you think about this is why I really enjoy reading these books? What is it for you that does that? Well, it's going to take a moment to actually get to the answer to your question. Yeah. So I'm, yeah. going to, I'm going to layer in my history here. When I first started reading science fiction, I read first setting more than anything else. Give me a world I can get lost in and never want to come out again. Be it Amber, be it Ringworld, be it the foundation of Asimov. Mm-hmm. I mean, give, give, me, give me a world and I don't even really need characters or even right. plot, really. I can wander around. Yeah. Wandering with Rama and just wander around that giant spaceship. Like, okay, I, that's all I needed when I started, first started reading SFF. And for, I don't know, maybe first 10 years of reading SFF, that's all I really ever. This is where I still am. This is where you still are. <laughs> and I mean, why did I, why did I love Tolkien? Because look at that map. And of course, all the appendices just as detailing those worlds. Like, I ate that up. You like could sp- go all sorts of different times within that map. Exactly. You know, it was, it was just like setting heaven. Mm-hmm. It took me a long while to find other things I wanted out of novels besides just a setting. I, I discovered I eventually needed plot. Okay. But I really need characters now. Okay. I need somebody I can follow and. And hook into to go through that world because I, I, I read a spate of novels where I had a lovely setting, but there was nobody in the in the novel I could identify with or even liked or mm-hmm. I really had any connection with. And I found okay, it's a nice world, but there's nobody here that's keeping me here. There's nobody for me to follow to walk along this path with to follow their journey, and I needed something more. Mm-hmm. So characters very important to me now, and you're no longer happy with Gary and helping you discover the will and the word and how all of the David Eddings kingdoms interact with each other. You would like him to be sort of interesting in and of himself. Yes, I need a viewpoint. I need I need somebody that, that I can like root for, or, or and especially a villain to root against. Because mm-hmm. a good antagonist is worth twice the weight of any any good protagonist. My love of setting hasn't diminished. For example, Cecilia Holland's fantasy novel Dragonheart. Mm-hmm. It's got 
interesting characters, but the setting is pasteboard cardboard. There's no map. There's very little sense of what this place is and how these things interact. It's very, very thin scenery. I mean, it's lovely character interactions and a good plot and story, Mm -hmm. but there's no world there. Mm -hmm. I need something more here. I can't just live on the characters. I still need them to inhabit that rich, deep world. So going to Kate Elliott, because at the time I still was reading for setting, the King, the Kingdoms of the West and King's Dragon and the world of Duran and, and the worlds of her space opera. It's like, that's all fine, dandy, good, like it a lot. By the time I started reading Crossroads, I started to want characters. And then when I hit Spirit Walker, I love Spirit Walker's world with the glaciers that I discussed with her at length about the glaciated Earth. But the reason that novel really works so well is Cat and B. Yes. And without Cat and B, it's a lovely world, but it does not hold up. You need Cat and B as the thrill. And Rory. Rory. Rory's great. I love Rory. Yes. Every, every time he shows up on, on the pages, that that's a delight. So I laugh so hard at the Spirit Walker story in The Very Best of Kate Elliott, the Rory story. <laughs> yes. But yes, I also really enjoyed the Spirit Walker trip because of Cat and B. And I think I would enjoy rereading it because I'm more more aware of some of my own assumptions and biases toward character. So with Cat and B, like, I think I was still, I was very kind of interested in and connected to... Uh, and divide. Yeah, and I was I was... Not really aware how much I was, I think, kind of reading away from the dynamics of those sisters, which is why I'm looking forward to rereading it at some point, because I think that'll that'll make it an even more rewarding read. But go on. I kind of cut you off as you were talking about those characters. Right. Their interactions make those novels what they are. I mean, it's a lovely world. You have the spirit world. You got lawyer dinosaurs, basically, in Mm -hmm. North America. I mean, there's, there's so much awesome setting and ideas thrown into that world. You, you can get lost in it forever, but without Cat and B, that those novels just do not work. It, I think without them and without them to ground it and sometimes to sort of turn away from all of the other awesome stuff in the story, it would be kind of a travelogue and an overloaded travelogue. Right. I mean, like in the, in the third novel, I mean, we have an entire war going on, but she makes it manageable because we're focusing on those characters rather than trying to tell the story of Kamajasta's war, war against, right. uh, against Europe. By having, being able to focus on those characters, she makes it the story that's possible and worth telling. Mm-hmm. So my first Kate Elliott was Jaren. And I remember loving, I was kind of interested in the space stuff and this notion of a space empire and that humans weren't on top of the space empire. But I just, the scenery and the horse lords riding across the plains. And I don't think I I could have articulated it then, but the romance of the story and therefore the strong emotional connections that Tess has with both Ilya, but also the other men of the journey and the women in the camps. And I don't think I could have articulated at the time, but that like that Tess has those relationships and that you get to see the society through those relationships. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like I was kind of sucked in by the relationships and able to tell myself I was enjoying it because of the ways that I was seeing the society. And then there are just, like my image of Jaren is the few of them on horses riding across this vast expanse of grasslands. 
and the freedom and excitement and exhilaration that that is, especially for Tess, once she has gone from being the newcomer to being able to ride and feel like that gives her some sense of ownership and control and accomplishment. Mm. I discovered Kate Elliott many years after she actually started riding. And this was the mid-90s, and I was in a phase of trying to discover new authors by means of award shortlists. Okay. So in 1996, the Nebula Award shortlist came out. Mm -hmm. And on that list were two authors, one George R. R. Martin and one Kate Elliott. And I thought, okay, that's odd. There's fantasy novels on a usually science fiction shortlist. I will read them both. Okay. So I read A Game of Thrones and I read King's Dragon. Mm -hmm. And I loved them both. I also noticed they were awfully similar in some ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, pe people think, oh, yeah, George R. R. Martin invented Grimdark and dark characters. And Kate was doing the same thing in King's Dragon the same year. I noped out of that series after three... Like, I still have not finished it because I just couldn't take Leah and all of the terrible, terrible things that were happening to her and the rest, yeah. of, the rest of the family. So while I was waiting for that series to continue, since I had started it at the beginning of like, okay, she's got other novels. And so I started going back mm -hmm. and started, I started reading the Duran novels. I, I discovered that she wrote a couple novels under her real name of Alice Rasmussen. So I said, I'll read those. And... And I discovered uh, two additional authors in reading The Golden Key, which she mm -hmm. co-wrote with Melanie Ron and Jennifer Roberson. It's like, oh, more authors. And so yes, well, I wound up going to the weeds of reading their works after. Because Roberson was the Chesley books, right? Yes. I don't remember exactly how I came across those. I feel like maybe mid to late high school. She was one of those authors that I found around that time, which probably was sort of chasing you a decade later. So you started with King's Dragon and then worked your way backwards. And then, then I started working my way forward. So when she went into the Crossroads novels and then into the Spirit Walker novels, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I was able to keep pace with her. Getting through her back catalog is, is kind of a terrifying endeavor at this point. <laughs> her uh, book of short stories accepted, she... Kate does not write short. And, no. and Court of Fives. Court of Fives is the most compact I've ever seen her write in her life. It's like, wow, you you don't need 800 pages. Not that I mind the 800 pages, but you don't need the 800 pages when you really, really boil it down. Mm -hmm. I could see the 800-page novel lurking in that YA novel. Yeah. Could, especially yeah. in the back half when we start seeing more stuff about the tombs and then the... And the, and the magic, I was thinking, okay, I can see where you could expand this out and double the length of this thing easily, but you didn't. Mm -hmm. Not only a gigantic Kate Elliott world, but the social dynamics and the family dynamics. Like, there were times and little scenes and just little comments that one character, generally a character with less privilege, would make to a character with more privilege. Mm-hmm. And I would get to those bits and I would say, oh, this is a Kate Elliott novel. She's very aware of how societies organize themselves and how privilege plays out in those situations. Especially when there's intersections that haven't happened before and people are getting used to these new intersections of privilege and power. And she does this in Black Wolves, too, by the way. I hadn't read Crossroads. I read Black Wolves without reading Crossroads, which is easy to do. But I will be curious to see what it's like to 
read it after having read the trilogy. Because I'm about halfway through now. I'm like, this is going to be really... Di My perspective on many people is going to be very different than it was. Kate Elliott is definitely in the first rank of my favorite and must-buy, must-read authors writing today. Yes. There's a Kate Elliott book for just about any kind of fantasy reader out there. Mm -hmm. Whether you want to go grim, dark, Western European, you can go King's Dragon. If you want that first-person perspective in, in a parallel earth, you can go Spirit Walker. If you want Justice Eagles, you have Crossroads and soon Black Wolves. Mm -hmm. If you want something shorter and denser and YA and still kick-ass, you got Court of Fives. If you want science fiction and quasi-Mongols on an alien planet, you got Jiron. You got choices and one of these things is going to appeal to you mm -hmm. thanks for listening i'm going to close the show on andrea's remembrance so just wanted to remind you all that i love feedback tweet me tweet the show stop by the feedback page or come be a guest now here's a memory of first encountering king's dragon i first ran into kate elliott on twitter rather than as an author through her books, and it was during one of my regular whines for new fiction that she suggested her Crown of Stars series to me. And the funny thing is that I can remember seeing them in the bookstore uh, all those years ago when they first came out, but I was just getting off my Mercedes Lackey kick, and they shared a cover artist, so I walked right by. And I don't regret that, because at the time they were not the books I needed, whereas when I came to them... I was a military veteran with post-traumatic stress disorder, struggling to find my place in the world. And I opened up these books in my favorite genre, high fantasy, and discovered a world where the women were not set dressing, where all the agriculture was correct. And here was Sanglant, who was also a military veteran with PTSD, trying to figure out what his place in the world was going to be. And that wasn't his story. He was an entire person, and he was battered, and he was bruised, and he woke up from nightmares in a cold sweat. But he was also brave, and he was true, and he did his duty as best he saw it with the resources that he had. And it was amazing. It's very rare to find a book where... You see acknowledged the price that those of us who fight the wars pay, but where it is also not the entirety of our story, where it is one part of us as a whole entire person, and where we can not only function, but we can be brave and we can be true. And all Sanglant wanted was a little farm and his family and the peace to farm his little piece of land. And here I was on my little piece of land with my goats and my sheep and my chickens. And this story just hooked me and uh, carried me through seven books, hoping against hope that Sanglant was going to get his happy ending. And, of course, you had Alain and his hounds and hoping that somehow they were going to get a happy ending. And people who have read Crown of Stars know there's an extremely stressful section with those dogs that uh, made me get on Twitter and turn my caps lock on and demand to know exactly what Kate thought she was doing. And she said, do you want a spoiler? And I said, sure. And so the spoiler she sent me that let me get through these books was that rage and sorrow live. And those are two of Alain's dogs, if you're one of the people who hasn't read it. 
And since then, I've read everything she's published, uh, plus her grocery list that she tweeted one day when I was uh, picking on her on Twitter. (laughs) And it's still Crown of Stars that I go back to because sometimes I need to remember that I might be bruised and I might be battered and I might wake up in a cold sweat from nightmares, but I can still be a functioning human being. And more than that, I can be brave and I can be true and I can have my little piece of land and find some peace there. And for that, I owe Kate a great deal.